the bench. Writing's really hard. We need another snack. And that is just a fact. Oh. oh. Hi, this is Shauna. And this is Trisha. And this is Two Girls on a Bench. The podcast. We write on the bench. <laughs> Did you forget what we do on the bench? <laughs> we snack on the bench, but I almost said we dance on the bench. <laughs> well, like, sometimes what? we dance on the bench. And, and now we dance. <laughs> and most of all, we procrastinate, <laughs> obviously, on the bench because By, we're, like, currently we're dancing. laughing at ourselves and <laughs> dancing and maybe playing the ukulele. <sighs> we were laughing so hard right now we were crying. I don't even know why that's the best yeah if you stick around after the like little pod fix outro sometimes there's some (laughs) funny stuff there i'm just saying i'm just gonna put it here just so you can know and be part of that secret yeah so there you go yeah okay this is a new episode but it's not a new episode it's the second part of the first episode (laughs) it's the haunted bench part two all the horror, Part original two. content, and ghosty stories. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I need I to was do that every for that. time. Yeah. I thought it was going to be kazoo, but you know, mm, you can maybe later me. if you're lucky, everybody. Ah, okay, so for our first bit on today's show, we have haunted stories by our friends Tammy and Bryce. Hello from Holly Weird Paranormal. And if you haven't listened to their show yet, like, what are you doing with your life? Yeah, please. Seriously. Put everything down after you listen to ours and then listen to theirs. And then go listen to theirs and then like swap back and forth to be fair. But seriously. And then you're going to hear them right now too. So you'll get an idea of how cool they are. So Tammy and Bryce live in Los Angeles and their show goes through not only true crime, but the paranormal aftermath. And it's super well produced. They are super funny and awesome to listen to and just great folks in and general. And like good info like good information. Good information you need about haunted things. <laughs> you need this information about ghosts. You need it. You need it. I need it. Yes. So a lot here of us need are it. they. There's a little a little bit of a, you know, audio mix situation happening with Bryce, but the story is worth it. So stick through it and we'll be back to tell you what's next after that. Go <laughs> magic. <laughs> Dance, magic, dance. Go, magic, go. What? Shauna is, Shana is forgetting how to speak today. To <laughs> I might need to take her to urgent care. Okay, here we go. Hey, Trisha. Hey, Sienna. This is Tammy here, and uh, we have a couple of ghost stories for your show, and I guess I'll start with my ghost story. This one happened recently, and I believe that I may have shown you these pictures in person at the Outlier Fest, but this is something that I had documented for our Instagram page on Hollywood Paranormal. And this happened this past February, February of 2019. And to me, this is one of the most unreal, uh, spine-chilling ghost stories that has happened to me or paranormal event that's ever happened to me. And I call the story Frank. So back in February, 
I had to pick up a serger machine that needed repair from a vacuum and sewing machine shop in Burbank. It's called Ace Vacuum and Sewing. It's located off of Magnolia Boulevard and it's a popular boulevard with vintage shops and memorabilia shops and it's a really cool place there. And I know that that store has been there for decades. I think it opened in the 50s or maybe the 40s. But I've worked with this shop since 2013. A little preface, I am a costume designer and director of an acting academy in Hollywood. And part of my job is to oversee and run the costume shop, which also means to make sure that all the sewing notions and stock is well stocked and that the machines are maintenance for our, you know, major productions. And it was time for, you know, our serger to be maintenanced. So Thursday evening, I go and pick up the machine. It's ready. And I decided just to leave work a little early to go pick it up. And right after I was going to pick it up, I was going to go home. So I picked up the machine. The manager, Jason, helped load the machine in my car. And I noticed that there was a lot of traffic. So I decided to like sit in my car and text a couple of friends just kind of take it easy and not rush back to my house. I decided to do a TikTok video for a friend and I'm sure you guys seen our videos on Instagram. And if your listeners haven't seen it, then you're missing out. So I decided to do a video for a friend and I went back to review the video and there's this frame where I'm wearing my sunglasses and as the camera is panning past my face, you see that there's some reflection of a person's face on my sunglass lens. And it instantly captured my attention when I was reviewing the video. I just kept on going back to that frame and back to that frame and back to that frame until I finally decided to do a screenshot. And I go back on the screenshot to the image I captured and I zoomed in and clear as day, you see a person's face in the reflection of my sunglass lens. And it is clearly the image of a man's face. And in the beginning, I thought it looked like someone was sitting in the backseat of my car. And then I thought, well, maybe he's standing in the front of my car. But the face look of of a man probably in his late 40s. He's bald, white, has kind of like a beard stubble. And he has these big, like, big pawpaw glasses. They look like Terminator glasses. And so I I was so stunned. I was so perplexed. I was like, what did I capture? I'm looking around the car. There's no one parked in front of me. No one is parked behind me. On the right side, there is a sidewalk. No one's walking past me. And I noticed no one pa- walked past me while I was shooting this video. I mean, it is 5.15 in the evening. People are most likely in their cars, leaving work. You know, there's traffic on my left side and it's consistent. There's no cyclists, no skateboarders, no one on those scooters, no one. So I'm just kind of like confused, a little spooked and just kind of bewildered. Like, what did I capture? So I go home, I park my car and before I head into my apartment, I just, you know, said out loud, Whomever I captured in this picture, you're not welcome in my apartment. You're not welcome anywhere near my sacred space. You're not allowed to follow me. 
because I was afraid like what if it was attached maybe to one of the shops because there's a lot of old shops around Magnolia Boulevard a lot of antique shops or maybe it was connected to one of the people that worked in the sewing machine and vacuum repair place so I sent the picture to three of my friends that are in the paranormal community um, they're all investigators and I asked them like what do you think this is what happened like what do you think could have happened how do you think I captured this image like I was just sitting in my car I wasn't doing an investigation I'm in you know I'm not in a haunted house or a haunted hotel or whatever and none of them can find a conclusive answer for me and you know they're just like, we can't explain what this is, Tammy. Like, best thing you could do is just keep it and document it. Another one asked me, just ask the people in the shops in that one block if they've had any, you know, paranormal activity. So the next day, I'm doing errands in Hollywood. And I stop in a coffee shop and decided to, you know, take a break and pull out my phone. And something told me just to contact um, the shop that repaired my machine. Just ask them, you know, if they've had anything weird happen in their store. So I called and Jason, the manager, picks up the phone. Jason was the man that helped me load the machine. And I asked Jason, I was like, hey, Jason, this is Tammy. You know, you helped me with the machine the other day. Um, I just have a couple questions I want to ask you. Um, it has nothing to pertain to the, to the machine. It's fine. But I just, out of all seriousness, I just want to know... If you've had anything weird happen in and around the shop, some things that you can't explain, and instantly, without any hesitation, Jason answered yes. So I asked Jason, can you explain to me, like, some of the things that have gone on, you know, it's okay, like, I dabble in this stuff, I research it, I have a podcast where we talk about it, and he said, oh, sure, yeah, um, so for the past three years, we've had some weird things happen in and around the shop. And I've been working here for a very long time, but this stuff started happening three years ago. So we've had things fall off the shelves out of nowhere. I, whenever I would open the store by myself, I would hear what sounds like talking in the back, footsteps in the back. I go in the back and there's no one there. When uh, we're working on machines and uh, you know we were at our workstations, we always have our tools at the workstations. They never leave the workstation. And there are times where, you know, myself or the owner Dragon, we would get up to, you know, um, serve a customer in the front of the room and we'd come back to our workstation to continue our repairs. And out of nowhere, the, the tools are either missing or they're in opposite ends of the room. And there's no explanation for it because there's no one else that works here with us. It's just us two. And we never, you know, bring our tools out in the front. We just always leave them in our workspace. So I asked him, like, what do you think it is? Is it connected to the antique machines in the shop? Because I noticed that they have a lot of antique sewing machines on display. And he said, no, I know who it is. And I asked him who? And he said, it's Frank. And then I asked him who's Frank. And he said, oh, Frank was this gentleman that used to work in our store for 15 years. And three years ago, he died on his way to work. So I asked him if he could explain more about Frank. And he said, yeah, you know, Frank, older gentleman, he, you know, all he had was his bike and this job. He used his bike to, you know, commute himself to and from work. And 
I guess he had developed walking pneumonia, but he didn't know it was walking pneumonia. He just kind of panned it off like it was a really bad cold. Well, this guy was <laughs> so diehard about his job that, I mean, even if he was sick, he would still come to work. And Jason told me that Frank called him and was the last person he spoke to before he passed because um, he was running late. He called Jason to tell him that morning that he had a hard time waking up because he had walking pneumonia but didn't know it. And um, he was running a little late, but he was almost there. He was halfway to work. So Jason gets off the phone with him and literally 10 minutes later, he sees ambulances, police cars, fire trucks, all rushing to the opposite direction. And then um, he kind of goes outside to see with all the commotion and literally like two blocks away, they're loading someone into the ambulance. And then he finds out that that was Frank, that right after Frank got off the phone with him, um, his heart gave out because of the pneumonia and his body wasn't well enough to fight it that it just gave out and he just died instantly in the middle of the street and this jogger witnessed it and noticed that happen and then immediately called uh, the ambulance and 911 and and yeah so I could tell Jason was a little shaken about that because he was literally the last person that he spoke to before he passed so after the passing of Frank is when the shop started to witness a lot of strange happenings. And they know that it's him because they feel it in, in their gut. And after a while, like Jason and the owner of Dragon would refer to whatever was making making the cause or the ruckus Frank. And it's like Frank would signify or give him a sign that, yep, that was him. So they know for a fact that it was him because, like I said before, Frank knew this job and only knew this job. This was all that he had. And the reason why, you know, his body gave out to pneumonia was that, you know, Frank led a very a very tough life. He was a recovering alcoholic. He also was a drug addict. So it left his body pretty vulnerable and very delicate. And he didn't have much money. He didn't own much. All he had was his job. And he liked being at work, you know. He just liked working in the back and just collecting his paycheck and that was it. And I asked Jason if I could come the following day to show him this picture and the video. And he said, sure, come in the next morning. So I, I, I go there and it's him and the owner dragon. And I show him, I show the both of them the picture and both of their faces turned white. Their eyebrows just are just so high. <laughs> Thought they were going to touch the ceiling. And then, you know, this look of seeing an old friend just appeared on their faces. It's kind of like that look that you get, that we all get when we see someone from afar that we haven't seen in a very long time. Or even if it's in a photograph, oh my God, that's so-and-so. I haven't seen her in such a long time. It's one of those things that just appeared on their faces. It was just this expression of like melancholy and bittersweetness. And it was like they're seeing an old friend. And I asked them, is this what Frank looked like? And they said, yeah, Frank was bald. He had the, oh my God, he always came into work with these big Terminator glasses. And he had this scruffly beard. And, you know, we always made fun of him for wearing these big glasses. And, um since I was there, I was doing um, an Instagram live 
feed because I was documenting the story on our story feed and people wanted to tune in to um, like this kind of like miniature investigation and interview at the shop. So in the beginning, I was a little shook. But then in the middle and then towards the end of the interview with these two guys, I felt like it was a memorial for Frank. You know, like we weren't talking about Frank's ghost. We were just talking about Frank as a person. And that whole time that we were doing that interview, both Dragon and Jason were just sharing stories about Frank and shooting the shit and, you know, just telling me all these funny stories that involved him and this other coworker too. This, they had another coworker who happened to pass as well. And at one point I asked him, is it working here like a curse? They're like, no, it's just, you know, some of these guys just didn't know how to take care of themselves, you know? So, um, I asked Jason, I asked him like, what do you think Frank appeared in my video the way he did? And, Jason said, well, you know, it's one or two things, you know, saw a cute girl in the car, I wanted to know what you were doing, or, you know, maybe he knew that you were really into this stuff, and maybe, you know, you have a, a certain type of gift where you can see or feel these types of things, and maybe he just wanted to say hi, and in my gut, I just felt, I really felt that Frank wanted his story just to be told. Because I know, like, by talking to Dragon and Jason, that maybe Frank didn't have a lot of people that were friends. And maybe he didn't have people that were there to remember him and honor him when he was living, you know. And I don't want to get so emotional talking about this, but it was just kind of sad to know that he led a very lonely life. And maybe he wanted me to somehow have people remember him and tell his story kind of like a cocoa moment <laughs> but I remember and I sent you guys this video clip that we were in the back and something ended up happening that we were in the back and Dragon was telling us this funny story about one of the co-workers how he had this horrible ugly girlfriend <laughs> and Frank hated the girlfriend would always make fun of the way that this girl looked they were saying something about the girlfriend and we all laughed. Dragon said something about it and we I just started laughing and then all of a sudden Jason looks up and points at this chair that's hanging on the ceiling and it starts to swing back and forth. It starts to swing back and forth out of nowhere and I captured it on the video and I felt like it was probably a way like Frank saying, yep, you know, I remember that. That girl was horrible. Like he was validating like, yep, that's so true. Like I hated that guy's girlfriend, but it was such a funny story the way that Dragon was, was telling it. So yeah, I, I left the shop. I tried to return to do an investigation, but I know that they got really, really busy. But um, but yeah, I, I left the shop with this ghost story. And, you know, just as a little side note, like these two guys, Dragon and Jason, they are, they're, you know, just normal, regular Joes. They're two tall butch men. They have tattoos. They don't mess around. Like they're there to do work. They're not here to bullshit. And that's what I got from them. And I felt like my takeaway was like, I felt like, you know, most likely Frank reached out to me because he wanted his story to be told. And that is something that we described in Outlier Fest. You know, part of our jobs as podcasters is to be, you know, these storytellers 
And if we're in true crime and paranormal podcasts, part of our jobs in some weird way is just to tell the stories of those that are no longer here to share them or don't know how to share them or can't share them. So I feel like in a way we're helping them do that. And in my gut, I felt I was helping Frank tell his story in this weird way. So yeah, that's the story of Frank and I'll never forget him. And I always have his picture on our feed. So if your listeners want to go and see it on our Instagram, it's there. They just have to scroll a little ways down. But every time I go there, because I always go down Magnolia Boulevard, I love that area. There's this coffee shop called Palms and I always get coffee there. And two doors away is the Ace Vacuum and Sewing Machine place. But every time I walk past it or if I'm getting coffee, I always make it an effort just to stand by the door of that shop and say a little prayer and say hi to Frank. And hopefully, you know, just take a picture and maybe catch him in that picture with me. So that is my story of Frank, guys. Now here is Bryce's story to follow. story uh one of my first paranormal experiences i believe um on an earlier episode that we did but um yeah i basically this was one of the first times that something ever happened to, to me that i couldn't explain but that enough people um also experienced that they could kind of you know, corroborate my experience, I guess. So I went to school in a pretty rural town in Indiana uh, called Warsaw, Orlando Lake. And, you know, most of the, like, the only places that were open past 10 were Walmart and Steak and Shake. So we spent a lot of time either, like, driving around or walking around by the lake and on this particular night, me and two of my friends were walking in this, like, very nice uh, neighborhood that was, like, right on the water. It was, like, this really beautiful evening. We were just walking and talking. And we would kind of wandered through this, like, specific neighborhood. And it was, like, big brownstones and little cobblestones on the street. Little, like, lights lining the way. And so we're walking and like looking at these beautiful houses and it's a cul-de-sac at the end of the street where the trees had like grown over the circle of the cul-de-sac. And so it gets really dark and all three of us sort of stopped talking at the same time, like as we went into the darkness of the cul-de-sac. And I had been here uh, many times, you know, it sort of, uh, there was a bike path that sort of ran 
through this little cul-de-sac and you could go to the lake down by there. Um, and there was this field. And so as we were in the cul-de-sac, I kind of knew, well, maybe we can walk into the field, see some of the stars. Um, I like kind of thought I knew where we were going. Um, and as I turned and looked to the left, the field, uh, there's like a little dirt path between the cul-de-sac and then like a 30 foot path and then you could see into the field. And where we were, it was nearly completely black because there was no street light and the trees had blocked out all the like extra light from the stars on the street. But the field was as bright as day. Like the moon, I've never seen the moon so bright. And it was almost like blinding just because like we were in such a dark section and the field was so lit and there was like fog on the ground and it was reflecting off of that. And, you know, we kind of are wandering towards the field. And then I had this like very rapid chain of thoughts uh, as my mind sort of raced to process what it was seeing. And it wasn't until later that I realized like, oh, these aren't normal thoughts. Like you're, you're not having a rational experience right now but I looked and at the edge of the path there was sort of a mass covering the whole path at the edge uh, right between the path and the field and I thought oh there's a log across the path they put a fire hydrant in because the mass went from being a horizontal mound and then like one section on the left side of the mass had kind of risen up and so I thought like oh it's a log oh it's a fire hydrant and then I thought oh it's a deer because the raised section like sat up further and then I realized like wait that's not normal like what you're seeing is moving um and you're like sit thinking these thoughts like too quickly like it's not making sense and then it jumped uh you know there's sort of still a section of the mass on the right sort of still on the ground and then it jumped up and it was like a toaster strudel popping up out of a toaster um the shape of like a man sort of uh it was very like tall and thin but the weirdest part as we're watching this happen is that i always say like if i get up off the ground I like roll over to or like use my hands to like help myself up. This sort of just like was standing in a standing position without any like transitory movement. And so, and the weirdest part was that for how bright the light was, you know, it wasn't even as if this shape was backlit. It was as if the sign on a men's restroom with no distinguishing features that that was the shape that we were looking at there was no outline of like a jacket or any clothing that i could distinguish and also it wasn't you know illuminating any kind of like light on it it was pitch black the shape was and almost as if it was like absorbing or like void of light so it was like this dark mass that had no distinguishing features, that was just like a smooth outline of a person, but that was like too tall and too thin and not wearing any clothes, basically. Um, and then this man shape, 
you know, and there's still a mass on the ground. And it, when it popped up, it kind of was at a 90 degree angle, uh, perpendicular to us. And then it shifted and essentially looked at us. And I realized like later that we were then, you were all standing there watching this happen, sort of like silently paralyzed for like a minute while this happened. And then when it shifted its gaze or like its movement towards us, my friend, she said, what is that? And hearing another voice, I like felt my brain reactivate essentially. And I just started running. It like my fight or flight kicked in and I just started running away down the street the way we had come in. And I like could hear them behind me. And it was as if the world started to implode around us. Like on the walk in, it's like probably midnight or so, super serene, quiet, calm neighborhood in like a very nice area of town. And all of a sudden, like, all the streetlights are flickering, and it, like, felt like the sound had, like, rushed back in. We're running down the street, and there's, like, dogs barking, and, like, this car alarm goes off, and a person comes out, and they're, like, shouting on their porch. And so we ran, like, a half mile down the path along the lake and, like, got to this one particular bridge and, like, ran and grabbed it and, like, turned around thinking... Like, is something chasing us? Or is it coming after us? Or what did we see? And, you know, of course we were trying to, like, rationalize it. And the more we talked about it, you know, I was like, maybe it was, like, two people, like, laying down. Like, we kept trying to explain. And the more we talked about it, the more it was like, yeah, but why did it move like that? Why wasn't it full of color like wouldn't we have seen someone's jacket wouldn't we have seen like it was so bright like if it had been even wearing like a black sweatshirt we would have seen like the shape of that um so you know like I said at the start of this it was just nice that I didn't see this alone uh just for the simple fact that you know my two friends uh and I we're all, like, seeing the same thing, feeling the same... I mean, they both said the same thing. Like, when it turned and looked at us, it felt like the fear was just, like, radiating. Like, we... I just... I've never really felt so paralyzed by fear uh, ever in my life before that. Um, So, yeah. So, I don't know what that was, necessarily. Um, At the time... You know, it was a very religious university that I went to. Uh, I definitely think it was some kind of, you know, demonic type presence, whatever that means. Uh, I don't exactly know anymore, but uh, yeah, that was one of my very first sort of unexplainable yet corroborative, if that's even a word, uh, experiences, so... This is so great. Thank you so much for collecting these stories and uh, for all the help that you guys have given us. And I will see you guys soon. Bye. Do you love a good story? If you do, check out Stories of Your and Yours. 
I'm Sean Ennis, and each week on Stories of Your and Yours, I narrate a classic short story, adding music and sound effects to bring those stories new life. The back catalog features stories by the likes of Edgar Allan Poe, Kurt Vonnegut, Rudyard Kipling, Mark Twain, Ray Bradbury, and many more. And in addition to classic short stories, I feature original stories by you, the listener. So if you do love a good story, give stories of your, that's Y-O-R-E, and yours, that's Y-O-U-R-S, a listen today. And visit the show at SYY Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to submit your own stories, requests for classic short stories, or just to say hi. That's stories of your and yours, available wherever you get your podcasts. So after those tasty stories, we have a snack book. Yes. Trisha somehow acquired a maple flavored and sea salt kettle corn from Trader Joe's. It's all like folly with a cute little like it's got a lot of brown yeah leaves leaves which we don't. I'm gonna read this because it's like we love a good bad description. If you maple, it's magical. It flavors the sweet syrup that can be wrinkled that can be poured over pancakes and waffles to make an everyday breakfast simply spectacular. Now consider popcorn, crunchy and delicate. Wow, this is like a thing. The perfect snack food. Add ingredients like maple sugar and sprinkle on some sea salt to create a sweet and savory miracle. It's a scrumptious blend of all inspired (laughs) flavors and a crisp popcorn (laughs) treat. That was... Somebody had a really we, good time writing that really one. We really need a job writing descriptions Man, of snacks. Trader Joe's. We're ready for We're you. We're here, Trader Joe's. Oh, my God. We're here for you. Sorry I keep losing my mind, everybody. It's okay. It's it might one of come those days. This is pretty good. It's not too sweet. The salt balances it out. Thankfully, yeah, because we've been doing, like, all the, like, we did the candy corn popcorn, and it was, like, I love candy corn. It was just so sweet on popcorn. There was, was like no salt to balance much. it. And, like, popcorn, you want to, like, eat some handfuls of it. Candy corn, you might have a couple pieces, but popcorn, you want to, like, Lunch it down, right? That's yeah, why we and love it was it. just like so sweet all we had the to, way. Like, have a big bowl of regular popcorn next to it to, to eat, eat in between to have a bite here and there. Yeah, you like <laughs> mix them together. This, however, is salty and sweet. Yes, or as they say on the back of the bag, scrumptious, scrumptious blend of fall inspired flavors. I mean, it really is. It's yeah, actually good. So go good. get it if you feel like being in fall or whatever. Bye. All right, so that was your snack book. <laughs> Um, brought to you by the bench, and now we're going to move on some to some more original content. <laughs> I don't know why I did that voice. <laughs> I might regret okay? that later. I sounded like I was gonna choke on popcorn. <laughs> I was like, "What's happening to you?" Write it, bitch. All right, now we're in the right segment of the show. After an argument about the how we could have just introduced these next pieces yes. during the last segment but it, i wanted to make it right it but because it is because these folks wrote their pieces so i wanted to give your them, mind well i was i didn't understand the complexities <laughs> of editing because you were an expert and i am merely along for the ride apparently and i'm just slowly losing it yeah i kind okay. of am starting to feel a little bit like the governess in the um and i'm like mm. uh you're looking at me honey i know like growling like suddenly my hellhound <laughs> came out of nowhere speaking um, of hell so the first <laughs> original story that we have what? is by ann fox and and uh commented i believe on our our candy 
uh, podcast last week, but let me find her info. Sorry. And Fox, she's the author of The Cat That Caught the Canary and another piece called After Midnight. And she... You go, Ann Fox. Uh, her Twitter handles in our show notes, and you can get to all her stuff. Um, you go with your bed. So. That way. But she has been writing original stories for all the horror and participating all month, which is cool because... I think we have more writers involved this year than we've had last year. Yeah, and people are like really bringing it yeah. on the writing, which I love. So her story was so good that I could not just have us read it because like we cannot do southern accents in a way that's consistent and lovely. It'll yeah. it'll turn into like some sort of caricature. There of are other ourselves. people like. So I found this other person, yeah, who we love, and his name is Sean Ennis, and he runs a podcast called Stories of Your and Your, and. He's got the most, and I mean this in the sweetest way, delicious voice. Uh, I, I just love yeah. listening to it's, him tell you're stories. You're going to love listening right now. So he uh, lovingly, lovingly, like, what the fuck, Trisha? He <laughs> graciously. There you go. Was everything all lovely? He graciously agreed. super delirious I, right now. I guess. And then it leads to. The more tired we are, the more we love you. Insanity and then love. And then weird stalkery, like, conversations about people when I'm just trying to, like, give them a pr- like, like a, a shout promotion, out. a shout out, yeah. Oh, I played his promo earlier. But so find his podcast if you like <laughs> to listen to stories, especially any kind of stories, because he reads original content and, um, well, all of it's original content, but some of it's by like very famous authors like Edgar Allan Poe. Okay, I'm just going to cut this whole You might have heard out. of Edgar Allan Poe, like whatever. whatever. Once or twice. So Sean, thank you so much. Sean has uh, read Anne Fox's story, which is called Billy's Inferno. Sean, love your name. Okay, keep going. <laughs> and uh, enjoy. Here we go. Oh, wait. Fuck. I fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This this is part two is just all about what happens after seven hours pass when we're in the same room together with a lot of sugar. Okay. So after Anne's story, Billy's Inferno, Shauna, the uh, Shauna here with me in the room, is going to read a new another uh, submission by Christopher Monroe, a story called Over Drinks. And he, Christopher runs a podcast called Soundtrack to Life. And of course, all of this will be in the show notes, but check out his show. Uh, it's just about loving music and talking to people about the music they love and each episode features a different kind of like genre of music type of music type of songs it's a really good show good so another one um thank you so much christopher and original writing once again here we go to uh, original stories booyah take a listen billy's inferno the devil and metalstopheles by ann fox Why did you do it? Coldly staring forward, Billy shrugged, smirked, and smugly replied, I was having a bad day. Billy always behaved as if he never had to suffer any consequences for his actions. He never feared any grave ramifications that could potentially harm him. Innately, don't we all wish that we could feel completely blasé about every regrettable action we've made? No, not Billy. Billy was different. Billy was wicked. In a way, Billy had no soul. Having regrets makes us all the more human. We learn from our mistakes and carry on with our lives. It's like math. We learn how to add, to subtract, and to count. Yet as time passes, we forget the method by which we exercised our learning process. We may even forget the math teacher who taught us. What we never forget is the math itself. 
Billy had already confessed to his crime without an ounce of remorse. Mean, lean Billy looked over to the kin of the person he had just murdered. They were sitting in the front row of the little courthouse, dressed in black for mourning. Billy cynically winked at the weeping widow. She gasped and withheld her bitterness, though her expression and flushed cheeks spoke in volume. The old judge looked down at Billy on the witness stand and sighed grievously. He should have known that when the sleek, black, hearse-like 57 Chevy drove into their humble, rustic town, something evil was a brewing. That small town hardly had strangers frequent it. The townspeople were always leery of strangers. This time, the wrong sort of stranger had disturbed the stillness of the small, rustic town. The moment they heard his engine roaring as a tiger, the townspeople knew something wicked came along their way. They were right. The judge just could not believe that someone could be so terrible. With a southern gentleman-style accent, the judge stated, "'Well, Mr. William?' But Billy interrupted the old judge, whistled, shook his finger, and said, "'Sir, call me Billy Billy. First name's Billy, last name's William. Since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, I've been Billy Billy.' Billy sat back and looked forward with a dreamy, glazed expression. "'That's right. A mean, lean Billy Billy.' By the way, old man, ain't I supposed to have some kind of lawyer to defend me? Hey, Gramps, where's the jury? The judge stared coldly at him for a moment, then continued with an authoritative tone of voice combined with repulsion. Okay, Mr. William. The old judge looked down at the piles of paper stacked in front of him, then took out the paper that had Billy's very own confession with his John Hancock at the bottom. From what I know about you, by your own twisted, proud admittance, you driving that immaculate old 57 Chevy, freeloading and killing whoever gets in your way. You're wanted in 39 states. You rob banks, live out of hotels and out of your car. You do what you want, when you want, and quite frankly, you act like an animal that cannot be reasoned with. You, sir, are a cold-blooded killer, and you brag about it to whatever ears will hear your horrible words about your despicable deeds. As far as I am concerned, I am sorry to say you seem to have no soul, Mr. William. How in hell can you go off killing folk? How in the world do you live with yourself? Billy did not answer. He looked up at the judge and paid very careful attention to his words. Hearing what he'd once done made him proud as a peacock. If he could, he'd hear it all over again. It was like music to his ears. The judge continued. It is the opinion of this court that you are a menace to society. And I think you are a psychopath. Billy leaned back in a so-what-else-is-new sort of way and replied, Well, at least I got good hygiene, Yana. The honorable judge grunted and asked Billy, huh, Were you on some sort of narcotic or alcohol when you committed these crimes? Shocked and appalled, Billy clutched his chest and looked up at the judge. Your Honor, I am aghast and insulted by the insinuation that I would conduct myself in such a manner under the influence. I drank, surely I do, but hardly. Last thing I would want is to crash my car up. Everything I've ever done was clean and sober. I would never, never in my life jeopardize my Chevy. However, I humbly forgive you for your question. It is a reasonable question and one I would have asked myself had I been a judge. You just want all the facts, I understand. I'll let bygones be bygones. Billy Billy leaned forward to the bailiff and asked quietly, "'Be sure to add that statement to the record, if you don't mind. I want everyone to know I was always clean and sober.' The bailiff pressed his hands over his face in disgust. If Billy had pretended he was drunk or a drug addict, he might have been given a little bit of leeway. 
mean, lean Billy Billy was arrogantly proud of himself and would never deny his crimes. The judge shook his head slowly. The old man was disgusted. Have you ever raped a woman? The judge asked before making the final verdict. Billy snickered. They thronged to me. He had, but a lot of women have thronged to the bad boy, mean, lean Billy Billy. He wasn't a hideous man. He has fooled many women and girls with his charm, which ultimately was his greatest weapon. His tongue should have been forked by now with all the smooth-talking, side-winding lies. Billy corrupted many people with that tongue. He was slick. Billy provoked many people, both women and men alike, to do the most heinous things because of his unnatural ability to lure people to do his bidding. His method? Providing a reasonable argument, offers no one could refuse. In another time, in another place, Billy William would have been an excellent lawyer. He could sell someone their own car. Nevertheless, this is not another time or place. This is Billy William, always known as Mean Lean Billy Billy, a loner, corrupt, wicked. Of all the people that the old judge ever encountered, Billy was by far the worst. Ever heard a child? Billy folded his arms over his chest, thought about it, and replied, eh, A couple, but it wasn't really intentional. That wasn't the truth. Billy provided young girls that hit puberty with heroin in exchange for 15 minutes alone with him. He also provided cocaine for prepubescent boys with cute young sisters. When the girls got too attached, they'd threaten him if he didn't call them back. In return, Billy would call back and beat them to death upon meeting. Billy was never heartbroken in his life because, quite frankly, he never had a heart. Billy was selfish, all right, and he did have love in his heart and passion. He had a love for destroying people in one form or another, and subsequently destroying the families of those he victimized in a dramatic way. The old judge shuddered. You've been running from the law for years, and right here, right now, it's gonna stop. Please rise. The verdict was in. Billy had proudly confessed to his crimes. He was a side-winding venomous snake that nobody could catch. No one. The good people of this desolate town managed to somehow capture the low-down mangy hellraiser. Billy stood up from that creaky wooden chair with his shoulders straight back and raised his chin with arrogance. He waited patiently, like someone about to be presented with an award. How was Billy ever put in this dilemma? Well, mean, lean Billy Billy murdered a man yet again. This time it was a man from a small town called St. Johnsville. Billy gunned the man down with his silver six-shooter his signature weapon of choice, barring his bare hands. He was on the run for years and made a pit stop in this small town in the middle of nowhere with a population of at most 300. It was the kind of place you yearned to escape from. It looked like Tombstone when it was first inhabited by gold diggers. At first, one would think it was an historic site where everyone was in costume and would give the grand tour of the time period. The townsfolk were all God-fearing, Bible-toting, but they did have a secret like many small towns do— their secret was deviously grave. They can fool many with their values and use their faith as a shield, but their secret was extreme, and only sinners, like Billy, were entitled to find out what it was. They soon would. Through Billy's eyes, this town was crooked, and there was something terribly wrong with it. He committed crimes across every honky-tonk down across the southern border, all south of the Mason-Dixon line, but never in his life had he stumbled upon a town so backwards in time. Even the sentence was strikingly abnormal. Mean, lean Billy Billy was taken aback by the judge's sentence. It was highly unexpected and borderline ridiculous. The judge slowly stood up, pointed to him from high above the wooden podium, and vehemently decreed, I find you guilty and sentence you to hell. 
Hell? Billy squinted his eye. You mean gallows, old man, lethal injection. Which way is it going to be? Billy didn't prep himself for death row. He didn't fear death the way most people do. The old man grieved. Oh, no, 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 Billy. I sentence you to hell, all right. Thereafter, the judge slammed the mallet on the desk, exited the courtroom, and proceeded to his chambers. Billy was left alone with the law and the townspeople. The townspeople looked like pilgrims dressed in black. Women wore bonnets and men wore black suits. This town seemed like a dumpwater burg, backwards and outmoded. Looks can be deceiving. The vast flatlands were dry and barren. Tumbleweed hopped along the dirt road like a balloon on low air. It was a good day to die. The clouds were white, puffy cotton buds, and the sky was bright and blue. The air was arid and crisp. It was 2020, yet they were all peculiarly dressed, so old-fashioned. What? You folks just stepped off to Mayflower and landed on Plymouth Rock? Billy snickered. The policemen of the town, about four in total, cuffed the cold-blooded killer and dragged his sorry behind out of the courtroom. The townspeople spat at him and taunted him bitterly. They were very pleased with the verdict. They wanted to get their insults in before Billy went to hell. Billy thought that he was going to be dragged back into the little prison in town, back to that little place where he was thrown in and provided a TV dinner. But no, Billy wasn't brought back there. He was cuffed and dragged outside, thinking that he was headed straight to the hangman's gallows. The policeman brought Billy outside the courthouse and dragged him behind it. Billy kept a smirk on his face the whole time. In the back of this dilapidated courthouse with planks of wood struggling to hang by that one lone nail, Billy saw an open, cheap, wooden casket, clearly pre-used. A hole was dug up beside it with his shovel stuck in a pile of dirt. All the townspeople surrounded the hole and continued to taunt him further. They encircled the vicinity behind the courthouse like a mob, the sort that would carry torches, pitchforks, and bats, but they were only clutching Bibles and squeezing rosary beads while taunting the pathetic vermin. Mean, lean, Billy Billy upstarted a chorus of curses and taunts when he was on sight. Ha <laughs> see you folks are going to bury me alive, are you? The brutal SOB was lugged inside the casket and it was immediately nailed shut. He cackled wildly like the madman he was. After a moment, he heard something else get nailed under the coffin, right at the center. Billy's body shook from left to right when the casket was lifted. The maniac wasn't afraid of dying at all. Right now, he was especially curious as to what these clever, elusive townspeople were up to. He felt his casket drop, but he didn't land at once. The casket kept going further and further down. He felt his body drop down like he was riding a roller coaster or free-falling on a slide. What he didn't know was that beneath that pile of dirt there was a deep tunnel. The townspeople didn't report Billy to even higher authorities. They took this matter into their own hands and punished him the way they saw fit, as they had done so many times before. After falling for what seemed like forever, the casket finally crash-landed beneath the surface, far, far away from the light of day. Billy landed somewhere all right, but he was still alive. He heard the squeaking sound of the nails being removed from the coffin, and suddenly the lid was opened. He certainly didn't expect this. No siree. Billy didn't move. He stared up at those two glowing orbs of light. It was humid down there, and it smelled like the combination of barbecue, brimstone, and burning tires. The sounds of moans echoed and reverberated against the rocky stone walls. He also heard the ear-splitting sound of an organ playing. The ceilings were tall and high like a stone cathedral. The place was lit with large blinking lights, bulbs, and blinking buttons. Billy quickly stood up and hopped out of the casket. 
This place was actually futuristic as opposed to the humble homesteads on the surface. What he saw was beyond his expectations. Billy saw nine-foot-tall robotics making creaking, clanking sounds whenever one of their metal joints moved. Their bodies were exceedingly thin and made of a black metal. They looked as though they had an exoskeleton like an ant does. They didn't look like insects. They just acted like them, quickly scurrying about their business in an organized fashion. Their fingers were long and pointy. Their eyes were slanted, incandescent, white, glowing orbs. Two of these robot minions reached the lid of the casket and pulled off a letter decreeing the judge's sentence. Thereafter, the two demonic robots hauled Billy in the direction of a large black iron door. As he was being hauled under his arms, Billy looked to see what these robots were doing and where that infernal screaming was coming from. Even their choice of torture devices were metallic and futuristic. As Billy was hauled closer and closer towards the black ominous door, he caught sight of many devices. Billy didn't cringe. So them sons of guns made hell for themselves to punish who they see fit to hell while the sinner's still alive. Billy smirked as he observed dozens of men and women being tied to a metallic pinwheel that looked like clock gears. They were stretched out on the wheel. People, sinners, were being tossed into a tank of razor blades, then dipped into an alcohol and vinegar combination by cranes. Their skins swelled pink. They were like a swab or Q-tip being dropped in a glass of water over and over again. Sinners were put on seats, strapped down, and injected by futuristic needles that induced pain from strange chemicals. Sinners were whipped, beaten, burned, had bones broken, and were tortured day after day. There were even more delicate futuristic devices that Billy admired. Sinners hung on thin, metallic, delicate strings on hooks. Some were strapped with those metal wires around their entire bodies till they were cocooned within the web of razor-sharp, thin wires that ceased to ever end on a spindle. The sinners cowered and cried their eyes out. There were only two doors down there. The ominous black door was one and a swinging door was the other. Billy glanced through the swinging door with the checkerboard floor, which was, he learned, the infirmary. At the end of the day, robots brought sinners on a slab and brought them to an infirmary to survive. The robots in the infirmary wore white coats like doctors and fixed up the sinners so they'd survive the next day for more torture. It was ongoing. They healed the sinner and it felt good, but they knew the next day there was hell to pay. They had to heal them to survive the next day's torture and to prevent the sinners from getting used to the pain. Every other day in hell was remove an organ day. Yes, every so often the robots performed surgery on the people without any anesthetics or anesthesia. They strapped them on shiny metal tables and used delicate tools. For women, they'd give hysterectomies. For men, they would castrate them. Oh, the sinners were wide awake. They'd remove kidneys, toes, fingers, eyes, and tongues. Sometimes they'd perform surgeries to bring their organs back. The pain was unbearable. They were high-tech, capable, and programmed. They'd heal them up good in the infirmary and then return them back to the table and re-perform the surgery over and over again. And those are the least of what these robotics did to people. Billy didn't wince. Billy wasn't squeamish. The place actually was tidy and well-organized. The sinners bled something terrible, yet the utensils, the tables and whatnot were all shining silver and spotless. Mean, lean Billy Billy thought, I wish I could fit some of these things in my Chevy. He had a twisted mind, cold, emotionless, and soulless. 
In one corner beneath the surface there was a large pipe organ made up entirely of metal, but produced music the way any instrument would. A robot played the organ non-stop beneath the surface. The dark music couldn't overpower the screams and unparalleled torment ensuing from the prisoners trapped inside the facsimile of hell. Billy whistled in delight, surprised that those meek little people up there emulated hell and were genius enough to create it. How long had this place existed? Deep underground their great secret was buried. Who knows what truly lies beneath the surface on the ground we walk on? Were the people of the town so self-righteous that they wanted to condemn people to hell because of a god complex? Billy couldn't help but wonder if these simple folk up there created the place because of fear. Fear that the Lord and Maker would be forgiving, or a fear that there was in actuality no real hell after death. Billy wondered once more about those meek little surface dwellers. Were they the actual creators of this place? Did their pious ancestors create this place, or did it always exist beneath them? For all he knew, this place was created by ancients. Regardless of how, why, or when, those self-righteous Bible-toters had a secret beneath them, a very devious secret that they had been protecting. Billy had no doubt that they had condemned many people to this hell, especially since the sinners down there being tortured weren't all elderly. Some were even younger than mean, lean Billy Billy. Though he was selfish, Billy thought to himself, What in the world did these people do to deserve such a punishment? Are they worse than me? I doubt it. No one is worse than me, and no one ever will be. No one. Billy was violently and finally brought into the room. The doors opened on their own when Billy and the two robots holding him tightly by his shoulders reached the front of it. Fire erupted everywhere from this room. It was the room of rooms. Billy snickered. This is friggin' ridiculous. He wasn't even slightly frightened. Atop a tall podium there was a robot. He was somewhat different from the others. This one had a red shiny body and little horns protruding from his shiny metallic skull. He was just as thin and tall. With those long hands, the red robot reached for the sheet that came with Billy, which bore the sentence from the judge. The red robot looked over it carefully and waved his hands in the air, gesturing for the minions to leave. Billy was uncuffed and left alone by his escorts. The doors were slammed shut. Billy rubbed his wrists and wished for his gun. He felt like he was in his birthday suit without his six-shooter. You got a hell of a place here, Billy snickered. Would it, uh, would it help if I said I was sorry? <laughs> the red robot looked down at Billy, and with a deep drone android voice, he replied, It might. I like to hear people beg. Well, Billy grunted, I ain't sorry. Billy paused a minute and asked the red robot, Hey, are you supposed to be the devil? The red robot stared down at Billy and decreed, Yes, I am the devil. And according to this notice, you have killed a lot of people, Mr. William. For this particular crime, you killed a man for no reason. Billy snickered. <laughs> I had a reason, all right. The devil looked down at the paper and continued. Oh, yes, you were having a bad day. Now aren't you a clever one? Hey, devil, Billy quipped. You ever think of raising some hail on the surface? What? No. The red devil was perplexed. The devil robot placed his hands on the podium and stared down at Billy. He cocked his robot head to the side. A creaking metallic sound ensued. The devil asked, Aren't you afraid of me? Yes, the devil had seen his share of sinners delivered to the underground. They all begged for mercy pitifully. Billy didn't. 
Billy was quite impressive. Billy chuckled. No, I ain't afraid of you. Why not? The robot was curious. Everyone brought down there cowered in fear, especially when they were before the narrow 14-foot podium confronting the Red Devil. How's, Billy had the audacity to say, you're just a bunch of gears and circuits. The devil leaned forward from the high podium and replied strongly with a droned voice, I am the devil. I am here to give you the punishment that I feel you deserve for your crimes against humanity. Every day you will receive torture for the crimes you have committed. Billy shook his head slowly. Oh, sir, you ain't. You can't judge me. The devil rubbed his chin and asked, And why not? Bows, Billy looked directly into those glowing white orbs fixed in the robot's eyes and mocked, Because you ain't who you think he is. I do not understand. The devil was still and stoic. I ain't afraid of you, because you ain't the devil. The devil robot slammed his heavy fists against the podium. It echoed violently throughout the stone walls. Fire erupted from behind the podium. Billy snickered to himself. Nice gadgets, them clay pigeons on the surface done concocted. <laughs> I am the devil. Now that, sir, is an insult to the delicacy of my nature, Billy added sarcastically. I bet you don't even play the violin or the fiddle. Play the violin or fiddle? Yeah, I played pretty mean piano myself, but I always thought the devil played the violin. Bet you ain't never challenged anyone in a fiddling contest, have you? A real devil did. Billy cleared his throat, cracked his knuckles, and continued to enunciate to the confused mechanism, arrogantly. <clears throat> okay, robo-devil, allow me to educate you a wee bit. You ain't nothing like the real devil. The real devil wants to rule Earth. The real devil would want to break loose and bring hell on Earth. He wouldn't lay low and listen to some gossamer church folk. Prove it, the devil hollered back ferociously. Never in his years underground did he meet up with someone as bold and cocky as Billy. Okay, well, it says in the Bible that the angels in heaven have a big war against the devil and his minions. They battle over who's going to rule the earth. It also says the devil gets to reign for 40 years, or uh, is it days? Yeah, Billy scratched his head and then continued. And now, devil, you go on torturing us sinners, your minions, and you expect us to fight a battle for you. Yeah, You have to rule for 40... Wait a minute. Do you even know what the Bible is? The devil robot shook his head. The uh, holy book? The devil shook his head. The good words of God? The devil shook his head. Billy held on to his belly, hopped a bit, and chuckled. You're the friggin' devil, and you don't even know the Bible. Heck, you're one of the main characters. You ain't in it much, but at the end, bam, there you is. You're the villain of the story. The one that everyone's afraid of for the sake of the souls. The head honcho of all the evils. Heck, the Bible blames you for everything ever gone wrong in the world. Up there, people would have to be living under a rock if they ain't never heard of the devil. And look at you, the devil. You, living under a rock, unawares, the people speaking poor poetry about you. I take it back. I mean, the real devil you say you is. <laughs> After Billy stopped laughing, he looked straight into the devil's glowing eyes and said, Eh, better you didn't read the Bible. I read it many times. Studied it in Sunday school, and it ain't taught me nothing. Anyhow, a real devil lacks sinners. They're more like him. Now why would you go on torturing people who do your bidding when there's a war brewing? Let me make myself clear on this. Billy was savvy, cunning, and the robot devil listened to his every word. The robot devil was only programmed with limited information and wanted to know more. He listened to Billy carefully. 
Now, if you're the devil, would you go to a prison or would you go to a church? Billy was cunning, all right. The devil thought a moment and answered, Prison. Wrong answer. Billy had an ace up his sleeve, as usual. How was that the wrong answer? Billy leaned his head to the side and whined, Because the devil already got the souls of the bad guys, the sinners in prison, he'd sooner go to a church and try to get the good people to turn sour. Get my drift? He already got those sinners on his side. Converting the good people into bad? That's what the devil wants to do. The real devil, I mean. I am the real devil. Knock it off. You sound like a dang fool. You're playing the part all nice, but you ain't behaving the way the true devil would. Billy was slick. Billy also had a bright idea. I want you to prove to me that you're the devil. Hick, why don't you just prove it to yourself? Why don't you just behave like the devil, go up on that surface, you and me, and we'll raise some hell together. The robot devil leaned his head back, stared at Billy, and coldly replied with an unexpected, I will prove it to you, but first, you are going to tell me about the Bible. What am I doing wrong? Did the robo-devil know he was actually a robot? And did those sinners truly believe they were dead? Billy scuffed some dirt from his boots and grieved. You poor, poor devil. I'll do you one better. How about we all, you, me, and those other black metallic bastards out there, those Beelzebots and sinners, we all go to the surface, and we all get ourselves a copy of the Bible, just to be on the safe side. We want our facts straight. The devil lifted up a metallic red pitchfork, pointed in Billy's direction, and slowly nodded his head. He agreed. Billy caressed his own hands in delight. He muttered under his breath, Now we'll see how much them Bibles protect him up there. Praise the Lord. Jesus would forgive, but them up there, they ain't forgiven. Too bad I ain't been sorry for nothing in my life anyways. It was on that day that the robot devil met the real devil in the flesh. Only someone like Billy could sidewind with a smooth tongue and escape from hell. Billy was worse than the devil himself. The torturing stopped. The sinners were set free. At once, they all started to climb to the surface. Billy waited to go last. The sinners, as horribly mangled as they were, didn't forget those folks that sent them to the torturous place. Well, they had their vendettas, all right. The robots just followed whatever the robot devil ordered. The devil robot followed whatever mean, lean Billy Billy told him. The red robot wanted to be more like the real devil, the sort of devil Billy described, and get his long, metallic fingers on that Bible, a guideline, and what his destiny and revelations would be. The mangled people crawled up in pain, moaning and oozing with blood. Their anger, angst, and adrenaline superseded their pain, as did their passion and longing to see daylight again and to reacquaint themselves with the Bible-toters that sent them down there to that infernal pit. They all congregated by the open gap, where the sinners are dropped down. They proceeded to climb up, one after another. The robots planted pitchforks into the tunnels and used their tool as leverage to climb up further and further. The robots were later ordered to assist the sinners. Those kept captive in this inferno, fueled by anger, used all of their might to climb up to the surface. They needed assistance to hasten the endeavor. Billy didn't want anyone slowing down his plan. Come hell or high water, Billy was determined to bring hell on earth, on the surface, beginning with St. Johnsville. Billy wondered if those sinners actually believed they were dead. If so, he'd have to convince them otherwise. No one was more convincing than Billy. If those tortured sinners were traumatized at this point without any ability to reason, it didn't matter, so long as they did what the devil wanted. 
there was no doubt that the mangled, all-sewn and stitched sinners would want to release their anguish and target their anger on those who sent them into the infernal pit. It was a grueling journey up to the surface. Remember, it was a long way down. After the sinners, the devil made it to the surface, with the robo-devil and other minions behind him. Billy muttered to himself, Looks like I'm gonna have to rule hell myself. Only Billy could. Hallelujah. Billy was actually saved by the Bible. He couldn't help but think, as usual, Dang, I am good. Over Drinks by Christopher Monroe. Before we go any further into this evening, I want to say for the record, I do occasionally turn into a wolf. It's not often, every month or so, but it does happen. In the interest of full disclosure, I thought it might be best to bring it up now, at the start of the evening, so that I don't have to bring it up later and cause you to think I might have in any way misled you. Once every month or so, I turn into a wolf and run naked and free through the woods out back of my house. By morning, I'm myself again, though a version of myself that is frequently covered in blood and stuffed with raw meat, and the rest of the time I go about a completely ordinary life. This has been happening since last summer, during which I was bitten by a wolf whilst on a camping trip with a few friends from work. And while initially it was a terrifying experience to be sure, once I realized what was happening, provisions could be made to get the situation under control. And I think I approached my new circumstances with a clear-headedness that I rightly deserve to be proud of. Every problem, after all, can be dealt with if you approach it clear-headedly. I've always believed this, and to this point in my life, it's always proved true. Overall, the situation has been challenging, but ultimately very manageable. And after nearly a year of changing into a wolf with the cycles of the moon... I'm confident enough that I have it under control, that I've decided that the time has come to date again. Hence the Tinder account. Hence the two of us here now. I know this is a little heavy to spring on you during a first date, but I honestly do believe that no relationship can be expected to work if there isn't honesty between the people involved. And this is an important part of my life, so I'm getting it all out in the open in the hope that you'll understand and find it in yourself to look past it. I do turn into a wolf once a month. It's not ideal, but hopefully it's not a deal breaker either. And even if it is something you don't think you can handle, it's better for me to tell you now rather than wasting both of our time on something that obviously won't work out. I'm in my 30s now. I'm done apologizing for who I am. I like me, and I want the person I'm with to like me too. So yeah, turning into a wolf during the full moon... And I probably always will. That's just me. Deal with it. After all, if I'm going to be a wolf, I can at least be a self-aware wolf. I need to eat brains or some other kind of wild 
game, so you say I'm just dying, just dying. So I accidentally ate my friend. Her brains tasted quite nicely. You see me standing over here, something has changed completely. I need to eat brains or some other kind of wild game. So you say, I'm just dying, just dying. I went from normal and human to waking with this hunger. I ate the closest friends I'll ever have in my lifetime. I am lost, trying to find brains. In an ocean of people Please don't ask me any questions I'll grunt invalid answers Or I'll say that I need to eat brains Or some other kind of wild game So you say I'm just dying, just dying, I need to eat brains, or some other kind of wild game, so you say, I'm just dying, yes I'm This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com. Hi, this is Shauna. And this is Trisha. Two girls on a bench is us. <laughs> that was different. <laughs> and us are the podcast. What? What's happening right now? Sean is going rogue, you guys. I don't even know. <laughs> we are two girls on a bench, the podcast. And sometimes we laugh at ourselves so much that we almost pee a little bit. I don't know That's just the truth. Right now. No, cut it. It's horrible. <laughs>